0: From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. So on pack, it says how many grams of CO2 you removed, and then also how many beach balls worth of fresher air you just created. Up to 2,900 beach balls for each box. Wow. Our success criteria is it needs to do as well as the market leaders when we do blind taste testing, and we achieve that.
1: Um, It probably made a lot of sense to manage weeds by tilling. Now we have the opportunity to reverse that and put the carbon back in the soil where it originally belonged.
0: Um, And we do provide our farmers with a premium for growing things this way. Uh, But we priced ourselves to be in line with the market leaders that are out there.
2: I'm Sarah Funsky. the world's first climate-friendly snack cracker was invented right here in St. Louis. Early Foods' new crackers come in cheddar, sea salts, and even chocolate or salted caramel. But they're different from other snack foods in that they promise to be carbon negative. Every time you eat one, you're actually helping remove greenhouse gases from the environment. It is a tall order for a cracker. And joining us now with more on Early Foods are two of its co-founders. Co-founder Chris Corbin is also Airly's Chief Supply Chain Officer. Chris, welcome.
1: Thank you, Sarah. I'm glad to be here.
2: And we're also joined by co-founder Jen McKnight. She is also Airly's Chief Marketing Officer. Jen, welcome.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
2: So Jen, your company is very new, but it didn't just come out of nowhere. How does this all go back to post holdings and all the breakfast cereals that we know and love?
0: Yeah, sure thing. So it actually began with our CEO, Rob Vitale, who was interested in really using food as as a way to help solve things. So he came to us with the challenge of go disrupt food and beverage. And so we actually looked at a few different areas. And the one that we ultimately ended up really developing uh, was this climate friendly area. And where we started with that is today, depending on which report you look at, greenhouse gas uh, somewhere between 25 to 30 percent comes from the global food supply chain. Hmm. And so we started with just a simple question of what if what if instead of just trying to be less bad, we could actually use food to help start to solve climate change? And that's really where we started.
2: That's a great question to begin with. And and when you said he came to us, this was just a little unit inside Post Holdings? Oh yeah, that's a great question. So
0: it actually, uh, again, went back to Rob Vitali and uh, kind of brought together myself, who had worked with Post for a while, uh, Mark Izzo, who had worked at Post for a while, me on the marketing side, Mark on the R&D side, and really just came to us with the challenge of, hey, go out there, let's build something. Let's see what we can do to really disrupt food and beverage. Because I think, you know, like a lot of CPG or consumer packaged goods executives was seeing the power of small companies and how some of these small startups were really starting to shake things up and ask, hey, we should be able to do
2: that too and so when you talk about a small startup i mean two people this is literally <laughs> just two of you within this brentwood based again post holdings they make all the cereals you know and love you know also bob evans products you guys have a yep. whole bunch of different food stuffs so two of you had this task you came up with the world's hugest question for a two-man team to tackle chris how did you end up then coming into this picture
1: yeah, I had the opportunity to join to, to support the the technical development of the product. So I had worked with uh, Mark Izzo in, in the past on uh, several other disruptive innovation projects at other companies. And he had reached out and said, we're going to solve climate change. Do you want to help out? And I said, absolutely. Where, where do I join?
2: So you're a fan of disruption. And you weren't so scared about the fact that this is just these two people in this office in the suburbs of St. Louis who are going to tackle Maybe the world's biggest question.
1: No, absolutely. It was actually very exciting. I think that uh, Mark and Jen and I talk about it, and it's the the Walt Disney quote, I believe. You know, sometimes it's fun to do the impossible, hmm. and that's really what we set forth to do.
2: So, Jen, when did the three of you sort of go, OK, like this is the question, here's here's this little startup that we're going to make to try to, to tackle this?
0: Well, we knew that's what we wanted to do. Now, it took a little while to figure out if it was actually possible or not. So we started with the premise that, gosh, I think we actually can possibly go all the way negative on farm. Um, And along the way, we found some of the right partners to really help us figure out how to make that happen. We connected world-leading scientists directly with the farmers. um, And we had a hypothesis. We thought it was possible, uh, but it really wasn't until that first crop came in that we were able to validate uh, through our life cycle analysis that through all the farming activities, all the inputs, um, all the machinery, we were actually able to get truly negative on
2: farm. So I'm so curious how you even begin to go negative on farm. In this case, a very positive thing. You said it was that first crop when you realized, okay, we can do this. When did that first crop uh, grow? (laughs) Yeah, so uh our first
0: one was about a year and a half ago. Okay. And one of the things that we were really lucky with is, you know, while it was, you know, two and then three of us within the company, we do still have the benefit of being part of Post. So, one of the things that that enabled for us was we could take this great experiment. And bring together world-leading scientists and farmers, and uh, you know we started it thinking we could get to negative, but we have to actually sign a contract with a con- with a farmer before you know. Yeah. And so that was one of the really nice benefits of being part of Post is if our great experiment didn't work. Um, then we have a place for those oats to go. We can always send them over to our cereal business, and you know they can go into your morning honey bunches of oats. It, it's not a waste of oats. Exactly.
2: But so it worked. So tell us, how do you go negative on oats?
0: Well, actually, I'll pass that over to Chris, because he's the one that really works deeply with our farmers.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jen. So uh, it's not a simple process, but we've laid out a a multi-step approach, and it really goes to the on-farm practices of the farmers themselves. And there are farmers that have been doing these things for 10, 15, 20 years, and they really haven't gotten the credit for what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things we're doing is communicating within the ag community what the impact of these practices are, Um, But specifically, we're looking to partner with growers who do no-till farming. And um, what does that mean? You're, no you're not till. tilling the soil? Yeah, they really, they stop tilling the soil and, and that essentially locks the carbon into the soil. So when you till it up every every spring, you really release it back into the air.
2: So I know very little about farming, but the one thing I know is that you have to till the soil every year. How do you just skip that step?
1: So there's uh, a whole process. There's special equipment that allows you to, to move away from tilling so that they can plant through. They also use um, what they call called cover crops, Mm -hmm. and cover crops stay on when your cash crop is not growing. So that uh, kind of protects and insulates the soil and makes it easier to plant the following year without having to till up every year.
2: So give us an example. What would be a cover crop?
1: Cover crops really—it's uh, a very wide range. It depends on the region that you're in, but some of our farmers will use things like buckwheat, clover, hmm. uh, even oats uh, as a cover crop in the off season.
2: Hmm. And so they're—they're they're also not going in and tilling then because things have been planted in a different way, or are there things being embedded under the soil to make it possible not to have yeah, to? Yes. So
1: you know, we try to explain this to people. There's two things we're all kind of familiar with: dirt. And dirt really is just kind of the absence of the ecosystem of what then soil is. Soil has plants in it, it has roots, it has microorganisms and all these rich things that help to grow plants. When we plant just in dirt, which is what we till up all the time, we don't allow that, that system to operate. And so we have to put a lot of artificial fertilizer And artificial fertilizer is one of the major contributors to greenhouse gases in the environment. Mm -hmm. So when we can go to no-till, we actually protect the soil, we lock the carbon in, and then we don't have to use artificial fertilizers on top of that. So you get a compounding impact that allows you to go negative on the farm from a carbon footprint standpoint.
2: So this seems so smart, and it seems so impactful. I have to ask, why did we get in the habit of doing all this tilling in the first place, if this works fine without it?
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, tilling has been a very effective practice for weed management for, you know, decades, you know, tens of decades. Uh, Unfortunately, we didn't know how to measure the impact of carbon release at the time where we were trying to develop and really... You know, what we're doing is try to reverse greenhouse gases to pre industrial revolution levels Mm -hmm. because we know that the planet had a different temperature and and weather patterns at that time. And when you look at conventional farming, what we've done to help, you know, bring the industrial revolution to fruition and grow our country and the world as we have, um, it probably made a lot of sense to manage weeds by tilling. Mm -hmm. Now we have the opportunity to reverse that and put the carbon back in the soil where it originally belonged.
2: Hmm. And you say there are farmers who've been doing this for for more than a decade now.
1: Yeah, roughly about 30% of the U.S. uh, farmers are what they would call no-till, long-term no-tillers. So it's just about a third of of the tillable ground. Um, But when you then layer on all the other practices we do, we cover crops, precision digital, um, fertilization, and several other steps there's only about 1% of farmers who carbon farm. And that's really where we're focused on, is carbon farming, putting the carbon back into the soil. And we want to share our story and and help people understand what we're doing so that we can convert more growers to that, that set of practices.
2: So for a new company, you are asking a lot. Of your supplier. You want your farmers to be among that 1%. And here you are, like, hi, I'm Early Foods from St. Louis. Our farmers, like, why should I even listen
1: to you? They certainly do, you know, and (laughs) and it does help. Like Jen said, we have strong relationships with our growers for many years through post. Um, And then we've also gone out, uh, Jen and I have gone out to the farms. We drove the combine this summer, harvested some wheat. We've built a relationship with these growers, their families, um, and we make sure that they know what we're doing with the product and how we're promoting what they're doing, you know, and they're really stewards of the land. Mm -hmm. and what they're doing um, needs to be shared so that others can learn from it.
2: And I imagine farmers, they're outdoors every day, they maybe see climate change in a way that the rest of us can ignore. I mean, once they understand, you know, hey, if we put this together, this together, and this together, this makes an impact, is that something they're excited about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We get a lot of positive feedback from the growers. Um, Even, you know, there'll be a grower who's conventional on one side of the road and no tiller on the other side. They can physically see what's happening on the two plots of land. Um, And it really fits under a broader umbrella of regenerative agriculture where you're actually returning the dirt to soil. Uh, So there's a lot of proof points there, but even at the same time we're doing this, we experienced one of the worst growing seasons in recorded history this year. Hmm. Temperatures in South Dakota were 104 this June, which is unbelievable, never documented. And so climate change is real, and the growers are feeling that, and in the very fields where we're trying to carbon farm, um, we're also feeling the impact of that. So the, the time to do this is long past. We have to take immediate action uh, so that we've got a sustainable you know, food supply into the future.
2: We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. And now back to our conversation, we're talking today to two co-founders of Airly Foods. Uh, This is the first climate-friendly snack cracker. You can actually get them in schnooks. These are here ready for customers. Um, A very uh, quick lead up on this project. Um, And we're joined today by Chris Corbin, who's also Airly's Chief uh, Supply Chain Officer, and Jen McKnight, who's the Chief Marketing Officer. So Jen, we think about all this happening within like a year and a half of this first crop proving that this works, that seems amazing enough in and of itself. But you're not just like doing this in a vacuum, you're doing this in a pandemic. Did that add a lot of challenges to trying to bring this cracker to market?
0: Yeah, I will say it's not been the easiest time in the world uh, to be launching a new product because I'm incredibly empathetic to what retailers are going through right now. For the longest time, you know, it was just about making sure that their employees and customers were safe and their store shelves were stocked. And it's really only been in the last probably four to five months that I think retailers are ready to start to talk about new items Mm -hmm. again Um, with all the supply chain challenges that are out there, I think it's still tough to get their attention, uh, but it's not been the easiest time to introduce a new item. And you have had some success. These are now in Schnucks right now. Yeah, we're very proud of partnering with Schnucks. Uh, They are available at uh, your local Schnucks store right now. Uh, They're also available online on airlyfoods.com and amazon.com, and we're working really hard to build our distribution in the rest of the U.S.
2: I saw you're now in Texas as well.
0: Yeah, so we're uh, down in Central Markets, which is part of HEB. Uh, We're going to be in in, uh, giant markets in the next month or so up in the Northeast. So slowly but surely, we're starting to build out uh, some retail presence.
2: So, Chris, I imagine just as it's kind of hard to make sure that you can get farmers on board for the beginning of this whole supply chain, there's probably also complications with, like, yeah, we're going to manufacture a cracker and we're going to get it to the stores that want it. Has that been, has that had challenges of its own?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're facing all the same challenges that any other manufacturer is coming out of the pandemic here, whether it's securing truck drivers to move our ingredients or uh, getting the bakery up and running, we've had a lot of uh, you know labor needs that are unmet, and um, you know we we do the same thing everybody else does. We're rolling up our sleeves, we're tackling these problems, and I think the the driving force behind us is we know regardless of the pandemic, uh, the work that we're doing to to fight climate change it's it's absolutely critical. So. Um, we just keep our nose to the grindstone, keep going. We come up with really creative solutions to make things happen, whether it's, you know, Jen and I have been at the factory floor, we've been out on the farm, uh, we have divided and conquered and gone different <laughs> places, you name it. Uh, we make things happen every day at early
2: And so Airly is based in St. Louis. I understand your factory is elsewhere in the Midwest.
1: Yes, the factory's in Chicago.
2: Okay. And so they're able to meet the need, or would you be able to sell more crackers than they can produce at this point?
1: Well, we certainly hope to get to that point, yeah. right? Uh-huh. We, we would love to have a wild success, but right now we've got a good partner. They're able to manufacture the the products that we need. And like I said, balance that with the rest of the supply chain demands um, you know, to get baked goods out into the market today. So,
2: Jen, I'm very curious about all this because certainly I imagine there's some St. Louis public radio listeners who would happily eat a cracker that maybe was kind of a meh cracker because they want to help the environment, and maybe they'd be willing to pay a really steep premium to buy that cracker because they want to help the environment. That is not every person in the U.S. who falls into that camp. So how do you balance needing to make this something that people want to eat with also that, frankly, do-gooder aspect that is so important to maybe a much smaller part of the the consumer base.
0: So we started by blowing that up
2: uh, because fundamentally
0: the vast majority of consumers out there really don't want to make trade-offs. We know there is a huge consumer need for folks who want delicious, convenient, wholesome, and affordable food and also have it be sustainable. So that's really what we challenged ourselves with from day one is no trade-offs, so. None. <laughs> no trade-offs. We uh, we did blind taste tests versus the market leaders. We designed this. Um, in fact, our success criteria is it needs to do as well as the market leaders when we do blind taste testing and we achieved that. Um, From a pricing standpoint, we are really absorbing a lot of the costs right now Mm -hmm. uh, because there are premiums as you're getting things started up. um, And we do provide our farmers with a premium for growing things this way. Uh, but we priced ourselves to be in line with the market leaders that are out there.
2: And when you say market leaders, um, I know you've got a cheddar cracker. Like, what might I be familiar with that, that you would think of as being in that same zone? Yeah, I mean,
0: you might see some square-shaped crackers out there. You <laughs> per- might see to some, some cheese. It. I'm gonna say it. You don't have to. Might see some aquatic-shaped crackers out there uh, uh, that we would maybe put, a little bag. <laughs> we would put our products up against. Uh, and so that's really been our design from day one. And I give Chris a lot of credit. Um, As we designed the product, we held the standard that it has to taste as good or better as what's out there today. Because fundamentally, to make big change, I need a lot of people to buy this product. Mm -hmm. And while I really applaud what a lot of the specialty brands are out there doing, fundamentally, when you price something at $7, you're just not going to be able to get a lot of people to buy it. It's going to be out of reach. Um, So we really designed this with the idea being that this is accessible to everybody uh, because the more people that buy it, the more farmland we can do carbon farming with. And candidly, we don't want to be the only ones out there. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what we we lovingly refer to as a lighthouse brand. Like, our hope is that by going out there and showing this is possible – a whole lot
2: of other people jump in and do it, too. You actually welcome imitators. We absolutely do. Wow. <laughs> you don't hear that every day from, from people who are innovating. So I got to ask, I see this box before me. This is a 7.5-ounce box. I know you're not naming competitors, but it looks a lot like the box of Cheez-Its I have in my pantry at home. How much is this selling for at Schnucks? Yeah, so depending on where you're at, uh, we're somewhere between
0: like $2.99 and $3.79. So. so these are not Whole Foods prices. This is, I could buy this for my kids and not feel like I'm breaking the bank. Yeah, our intention was this is accessible to people. And you're saying these are also healthy-ish? Yeah. So again, uh, and one of the things that's different about our product versus a lot of the other crackers that are out there, uh, oats are the number one ingredient. So Mm -hmm. we've got whole whole grain oats is our number one ingredient all four of our flavors are either 140 calories or less, uh, four grams of sugar or less. So we really designed something that would be wholesome, made of ingredients you would find in your own kitchen cabinet at home.
2: I'm curious about the oat component. Is that something where um, you wanted to do that because that's part of what makes it healthful? Or is that part of what lends itself to this type of farming?
0: It's a little bit of both. So, you know, as we were working with the scientists on what crops we thought we could get to negative first, um, oats were higher on the list and then also when we look at just um, the the satisfaction you know the stick with your ribs kind of like wholesome and heartiness of a whole grain oat um,
2: it was desirable from both standpoints mm. Chris, it's interesting. Are like oats sort of like the sleeper grain here where they've got all these amazing qualities and could also help with climate change?
1: Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, oats really do two things, right? They, they do satisfy you because of what Jim was just describing, that that hardiness to them. Um, but they're also um, a, a really easy to grow cereal grain. And mm-hmm. so we're able to implement some of these new experimental practices easier on the farm. Uh, our first year, we had one oat farm that went negative. Our second year, we had 12 farms that went negative. negative, five that were oat and seven that were wheat. So we took the learnings from oat, we applied that to wheat, and we'll be doing the same in, uh, and hopefully in 2022 adding even more farms, more acres, and more different types of crops um, so we can have a diverse food supply. I think you know it's our personal vision that you know we don't stop at early oat crackers. We'd like to have early corn and early wheat, early oats, you name it. Um, again, like Jen said, it's a lighthouse brand. We want to show what's possible and help to change that 1% of carbon farmers into, the majority of people who are carbon farming, if not hundred percent.
2: So you already have some wheat farmers who are now following this. They've got it to work. Is there going to be a wheat product coming soon, or is, does that also is that part of what goes into the current Early Crackers? We
1: did have a portion of wheat in the original product, um, but now that we have oats and wheat, it'll give us more opportunities to tailor the products to what consumers are looking for. So. Mm. Um, you know, we're really focused on the crackers. We, we're pl- proud of them and what we've been able to do from, like Jen said, the no trade-offs perspective. But um, really, the, the sky's the limit for us now with multiple types of grain uh, and more coming in our innovation pipeline.
2: Boy, this all just feels so exciting. I mean, do you think there's a potential here for all the cereals that Post does? Like, could they retrofit <laughs> A cereal that's already, you know honey bunches votes. everybody loves that stuff so that that has the same carbon negativity.
1: I certainly hope so. We work closely with uh, the teams at the at the cereal company, their r and d teams and supply chain teams. They know totally what we're doing and and we're hoping to to generate that demand so they can follow.
2: Wow. Well, it's so exciting to hear this story today. And I, man, you guys have just had a crazy busy couple of years here to get to this point. I'm curious, five years from now, Jen, uh, where do you see Airly, and, and where do you see this technology that you guys have now? I don't know, technology, this innovation that you have figured out?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I hope for five years from now, there's there's a couple of things that I hope will look different than maybe today. Um, you know, first of all, it, it, We've started with crackers, we started with wheat and oat, but to Chris's point, like when you start to look at the snacking arena, there's so many more spaces to go to. And then our mission is to reverse climate change through food. So fundamentally, the sky's the limit, both literally and figuratively Mm -hmm. with Airely in terms of how we use food as a power for good. I think the second thing that I hope will change uh, within the next five years is one of the things we're really proud of is we put our footprint right on pack. Um, So with each box you buy, you know how many grams of CO2 you just removed from the air. Mm -hmm. Now, we try to make that a little bit more relevant or easy to understand because who the heck knows what a gram of CO2 is. (laughs) Uh, So on pack, it says how many grams of CO2 you removed and then also how many beach balls worth of fresher air you just created by pulling that greenhouse gas out. Uh, Fundamentally, I hope to see that we're not the only brand out there with our carbon footprint in the next few years because... I fundamentally believe consumers want to do the right thing, but they don't always have the information at their fingertips to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so we try to make it as easy as possible on the consumer so they know exactly the impact of the choice
2: they just made. So I got to ask, if I get one of these, again, 7.5-ounce boxes, how many beach balls of air am I adding? <laughs> yeah. So it uh, depends on the flavor. So we have each
0: of them um, specific to that product. But uh, across the four that we've got today, you are remove of it's somewhere between 18 to 21 grams of CO2 from the air, um, and that's like 2,500 beach balls up to 2,900 beach balls worth of each air for each box.
2: Wow. I can <laughs> see why you measure it that way. That seems really big. Well, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is not what I expected coming into talking about a snack cracker, but this has been so interesting. Jen McKnight, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. And Jen is a co-founder of Airly Foods, also chief marketing officer. Uh, Chris Corbin, thank you.
1: Thanks for having us, Sarah, it was a lot of fun.
2: And Chris is also a co-founder of Airly Foods and the Chief Supply Chain Officer. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fensky, with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Doerr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio.